Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. Have we talked about WebDAV yet? I, I feel like it must have come up by now, but maybe not. Either way, the next application in the list that we need to talk about right now involves WebDAV, or rather DAV, broadly speaking, and that is KDAV. KDAV, as you can imagine from the name, is the are the KDE components for, or rather it's the KDE DAV protocol implementation. There you go. So it's the components that integrates the DAV protocol into KDE at a very base level, foundational level stuff here, meaning that it, it kind of ripples through all of KDE. There's, there are few KDE applications that you would think, can I use KDE, can I use DAV with this application that you wouldn't be able to do that? It's, ju it's just there for free for application developers to use. Uh, as appropriate. And one of the really, really obvious applications that would use the DAV protocol is Dolphin. And of course, Dolphin does use the DAV. It is, it is able to understand the DAV protocol. So let's back up a little bit and talk about what the heck DAV is. DAV, I wish I knew what that stood for. It's one of those acronyms that I really have no idea. Oh, here it is on the webdav.org uh, uh, website. So webdav.org slash specs. It reveals, after a fashion, that that stands for um, Web Distributed Authoring and Versioning, Web DAV. And of course, the specifications are online, it's an open protocol, and it is essentially an extension of HTTP. I find this vaguely amusing, I've always found it vaguely confusing, that people, I guess, somewhere thought, well, we need this we need a way to sort of authenticate and um, adjust permissions and and things like that so that people can use the HTTP protocol for more than just get and post action. And so they came up with DAV to kind of staple onto HTTP. And then you have reading and writing permissions over port 80. That's what DAV gives you. Normally when you open up a web browser, you can either get information from a server, and, th and that's what produces the website that you read in front of you. It, it got uh, text and images and, and binary data from, from a server, and it rendered it into your web browsing application. You can also sometimes put information. That is, if, if there's a, an application on the server that has asked for information from you, usually by way of some kind of form, then you can post that information that you've been requested back to the server. And of course, that's that's famously um, kind of a dangerous thing, because if you've got a server and you're asking for information from 10 or 15 people, okay, they're probably going to give you exactly the information that you wanted, but you multiply that times a couple of million people visiting your website, and suddenly you've got people who are either intentionally or unintentionally giving you garbage input, and so then you have to sanitize that input before you actually take it into your uh, web application and so on. 
So that gets a little bit dicey. But it's something, those are the two functions, essentially, of HTTP that are built in. And there are applications, there, there there are languages out there designed to run in tandem with a web server that then sort of hooks into information that you're being given or that you're sending back and manipulates that information, you know, PHP, JavaScript, things like that. So that's that's been around for quite some time. But what somebody thought was would be useful is that instead of just those basic interactions, uh, could HTTP provide direct access to a file system with all of, you know, with files that look like files and that track um, the, the usual POSIX information relating to files, who created the file, when it was last modified, and so on, and just give people direct access to that over an HTTP connection, meaning that that would be inf- that that would be available to users over port 80 for HTTP or port 443 for HTTPS. Uh, that was 443 and then the word for, so it wasn't 4434, it was 443 for the purpose of um, WebDAF. Anyway, uh, so that that's the idea, and it, it works relatively well. I had for for years i had a horrible experience with dav and really really hated it just could not stand it and then i started setting up applications that use dav and uh, i had a great experience it was it was smooth and everything worked as expected and and i think it has probably everything to do with configuration and with quality of application now i can't take credit for that myself because one of the applications i i am thinking of is next cloud which obviously i have I, I did not write myself. Um, so Nextcloud uses DAV a lot, and it uses it really, really well. I'm talking about really robust configuration options, really, really robust um, interaction options. So if, for instance, if you want it to be really easy such that you don't have to think about whether this is DAV or just pure magic, then you can use the Next cloud desktop client and it works quite well it's a very sort of like dropbox experience you've got a a folder on your uh, desktop that is aware of your next cloud install and vice versa and every now and again they sync up when something's changed on one side it syncs up to the other side so it it works really well and you never have to think about it you really don't have to really set anything up it's just well you have to set up next cloud obviously but you have to in terms of the desktop client, you download it, you install it, you you log in once, and it remembers your credentials, and it's it's just there forever on your desktop. So it's it's quite nice. But let's say you don't have that available to you for whatever reason, and you need to or you want to access your next cloud, the the files on your next cloud file system. Well, it turns out that because of KDE KDAV, uh, you can do that right from Dolphin with a special a special format of, of sort of a, a URI, a location on a, on, on, on a location, a location on a location, a location on some computer. Now remember, KDE is mostly network transparent. It doesn't really care whether the URI that you are providing it is on a har- on the hard drive connected to the computer that you're sitting in front of, or whether it's a hard drive connected to a computer uh, in your broom closet or in a data center thousands of miles away. It doesn't care. It it looks at those at all of those things as basically the same thing. It's a source of data. 
possibly for reading, possibly for writing. It kind of depends on the permissions on the hard drive uh, or on that file system. And so all you need to do is tell it what avenue to take. So in terms of WebDAV, you type in WebDAV, W-E-B-D-A-V, colon slash slash, and then the address, well, I should say a special address derived from your NextCloud installation. So if I have a NextCloud server called example.com, and I know that my NextCloud install on example.com is slash my cloud, then the base URL, well, the base URL, yeah, the base URL would be example.com slash mycloud slash, and this part is standard no matter what, remote.php slash dav slash files, and then your username, your login username. So that's a lot to remember, and it, it can be, a, maybe, it, it, you know, if you're only using it every now and again, you will probably not remember that full, that full address. I mean, it is, you, you probably know your base URL, example.com slash mycloud, but the remote.php slash dav slash files could be a lot to remember. And there's no really shortcut around that unless you maybe make your own shortcut, sort of a redirect on your web server, which would be fine, I think. I've not tested that. It just feels like it should work. Um, either way, that's the path base url plus the string the 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 um the path remote.php dav files and then your username your login username now when you type that in and hit return into dolphin it pops up a little login uh, pop-up box just a little prompt you put in your uh your username i think and then your password and hit return and then you're in you've got your files just as if though these files were right on your like on a thumb drive or on your on your main hard drive. It's really, really cool. And it's, you know, it's got the same permissions as you have, as you are managing on, on your, in this case, your next cloud install. So that's really, really smooth integration, instant, instant integration. And I think, I think the reason I find this amusing is because, you know, DAV in itself amusing is because I feel like, well, don't I have this already with SSH? I mean, I can do fish colon slash slash example.com slash, you know, lo my location, my remote location, uh, and, and log into, well, I guess it would just be fish colon slash slash example.com. No, it would be fish colon slash slash clatu uh, at example.com. And then log into the server as clatu and 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 I would have the same kind of experience, at least in KDE, because it it understands that. Or or GNOME, you, you go to the little connect box at the bottom, or other locations, and connect. Type in all the stuff. Uh, you, you know, you have that same kind of that transparency of of network experience. Um, but this is a true luxury of 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 a Linux desktop. Like not all desktops have that. Number one. And and then you could think, well, okay, well, why don't other desktops just do that? Then why do, why why not implement that? And I think, and this is the part that I find amusing, that I think that there's kind of a a weird, uh, almost superstitious fear of port 22. And I don't know what it is about port 22, but people really really think that port 22 is just too dangerous to interact with. But if you interact over port 80, then you're fine. I don't know why that would be. Um, I mean, I understand that port 22 is often an attack vector because of its fame, but that doesn't mean that it's any different than any other port. I mean, surely port 80 must be an attack vector as well. I don't run 
web servers often anymore, so I haven't looked at logs lately, but I mean, it's it's an open port, and, and, and I understand, you know, port 22 tends to invite a lot of login attempts because of the assumption that there might be an SSH daemon running there, but but that doesn't, I mean, that doesn't change anything, right? I mean, I've, I've run all kinds of services over port 22, and when in doubt, you, you provide limited functionality over whatever you're providing over port 22. So like a git, a git only shell, that kind of thing. That's fine. That works. And, and DAV would be functionally the same thing. It would be, it would be a, a point to interface with, but it would have very specific requirements. So the fact that we, for whatever reason, think that it's so much better to run DAV over port 80 and not just SSH over 22, controlled SSH over 22, f- strikes me as odd. And I think, I really do think that it's it's exclusively because there's resistance to, to, to protocols well, there's a certain universality to HTTP, I think, and and I think that does appeal to a lot of people because it's it's one of the it's the protocol that you can pretty much guarantee is going to be available on any OS on any device. That's just it. and so if you can push everything over HTTP, then you're guaranteed for it to work cross-platform. I've never been one to argue with cross-platform functionality, so I'm not arguing anymore with WebDAV. That would have been a different story long ago before I um sort of realized that the the DAV that I had been interacting with before I started using Nextcloud on a regular basis was just not well implemented. Um, and seeing how nicely Nextcloud manages DAV uh, has really, really made me respect the protocol a lot more than I used to. And of course, WebDAV is not just, it isn't just WebDAV, there's also CalDAV and GroupDAV and a bunch of other DAVs. Or a couple other other devs, and those uh, same idea, but different different data being transferred. I don't I don't understand. I haven't looked at CalDAV that much. Um, I don't understand why CalDAV is a sort of a separate protocol. I I don't understand why it wouldn't just be a file on a file system on a WebDAV file system on a WebDAV accessible file system. I don't understand why that would wouldn't just be a, a readable and potentially writable, depending on whether you've given someone edit, edit permissions on their calendar file, their .ics or whatever it is, uh, calendar file. Uh, but I'm I'm assuming that CalDAV must either be limited in in many ways so that providing CalDAV is safer than providing WebDAV access or or that it's just more specific into as to what it what it requests. I'm not, I'm not sure what the purpose for that is, but either way, CalDAV is is useful if you've got um, a calendar application and you want to subscribe to that calendar from a different application, or you want to share your calendar with someone else. That's that is very often done through the CalDAV protocol, which of course would be available in contact in KDE. So that's the back end. K, K, KDAV is the, the back end for all that stuff. I'm going to do a quick less on var log packages KDAV just to make sure I haven't forgotten anything. I don't think I have. It's a bunch of include files. It's a bunch of a little bit of documentation, a bunch of header files, and yeah, there's nothing there. Some CMake files and so on. So that was Cal, uh, KDAV. Next up is KDBus Add-ons. KDBus Add-ons provides convenience classes for uh, on top of QtDBus as well as an API to create KDED modules. So to talk about KDBus Add-ons, 
Well, in talking about KD bus add-ons, we need to talk about DBus. And in order to talk about DBus, we need to talk a little bit about IPC. IPC is uh, inter-process communication. That's what that stands for, IPC. It's kind of a big deal in computing for a very simple reason. It's because without IPC, you run into all kinds of problems. Um, so, for instance, let's say that you've got one application, it could be Firefox, uh, and you're downloading a, a file. And then you want to be able to open that file in LibreOffice after you've downloaded it. Now, you and I sort of essentially understand that when Firefox is downloading a file, when it's in the middle of downloading a file, you cannot yet open the file in LibreOffice because the, the file doesn't, strictly speaking, exist in a complete form yet. And so it would be, it would, it would not be successful to then open that file up. And of course, when you're downloading a file, it, it isn't, even though we have a little progress bar that goes from left to right, that's not how things are downloaded. I mean, things aren't downloaded, sort of, they're not stacked. They're not 3D printed on your computer. They're not, they don't start at the, the bottom, the, the, the most bottom layer and then build on top of it. It grabs bits as available and it throws it at the destination, and the destination potentially catches them, and the ones that it misses get resent. And so you've got sort of this, it's, it's much more like, um, a, you know, like a, a, a pixel display that, that's building a picture pixel by pixel uh, at random, not, not really filling it up from the bottom of the screen. So um, opening up a file can be, is just not possible at certain points in that, in that file's downloading process. And so that sort of illustrates IPC. In other words, when one process on your computer and a process uh, is defined in this context as a program in execution, um, when one process is creating some data that another process needs to read, there needs to be some method for process A to confirm with process B that that its process has completed, that it's done, that it's finished, uh, and vice versa, that, that there needs to be some way for process B to confirm possibly with uh, process A that all the data has been, that, that the message has been received. So you, you see that a lot in discussions of, of TCP versus UDP and things like that, but, but more generally, because it's not always something that you're downloading with Firefox to open up in something else, it can be lots of other things. It can be a log file, it can be... Um, a lock file, it could be whatever. Um, so you need that, the, you need your pro, the, the different processes running on a computer to more or less be aware of each other w when they need to be aware of each other. They don't always need to be aware of each other. My, um, my, my digital clock on KDE probably doesn't ever need to know whether I am running Audacity or Firefox or Emacs. It doesn't care about any of those things. But other processes obviously definitely do need to know about other other things. And so the the way that the free desktop manages that is the dbus uh, subsystem. And dbus de de defined by the freedesktop.org specification is dbus is a messaging bus system, a simple way for applications to talk to one another. In addition to inter-process communication, that's again IPC, um, dbus helps coordinate process lifecycle. It makes it simple and reliable to code a single instance application or daemon 
and to launch applications and daemons on demand when their services are needed. In other words, things can be programmed to be aware that Dbus exists, and when it gets pinged by Dbus, when a, when a relevant message appears on the Dbus system, then an application can listen to it, can catch that message, and then act upon it one way or another, whatever needs to happen. Common examples of this are, for instance, uh, a new hardware device has been added to your system. It's it's not super convenient anymore to necessarily to add a hardware device to your computer system, but for no application on your computer to to know that you've added that device. It would be not you would not appreciate it. I don't think if you added a device and then had to go through um, some steps to sort of have your computer understand that you've just added a device. That's not really the way things are done anymore. It, 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 it's arguably a way to do things. I mean, um, for a very long time, I had my desktop set to not acknowledge when I put in, for instance, a thumb drive. I just didn't need that and didn't have that set up. Uh, since KDE 5, I feel like I've just kind of given in to its defaults, which I've done a lot since KDE 5. I think I've mentioned that before. Um, and, and, and now it does, when I add a thumb drive, it kind of alerts me that, hey, I, I know that a thumb drive has been added. What would you like to do with it? Would you like to, to mount it or, or would you like to just, uh, read it as a image capture device and so on or, or ignore it or whatever? Um, and, and that's, that's possible because of Dbus. Dbus is alerting my desktop that there's been a device added, which it learned, of course, from UDev. But the fact that UDev was able to alert my uh, my external device widget, whatever it's called, um, is is because of Dbus removable de removable devices. That's what it is. So new hardware uh, devices added. What about a printer queue change? Sometimes you you want to know about that. Uh, maybe something's happened with your printer queue. Maybe something's stalled. Maybe something's finished finally. Uh, whatever, um, or, or, you know, maybe another application needs to know about it. Maybe you don't care, but some other application has been waiting for that printer queue to be clear so that it can then continue to process the stuff in its queue and so on. That's all done through Dbus, and kdbus add-ons helps developers dbus um, program that into their applications. Okay, so there is a executable application with kdbus application or kdbus add-ons uh, mostly though it's a header file it's a bunch of cmake files it's some libraries that are compiled um, and so on so the the application that that comes packaged with this is called kquitapp5 this is a kill all like application it it is designed to gracefully end the life of an application, a KDE application um, that is running Dbus gracefully. It, it's doing it so that, you know, you're not, you're not pulling the rug out of, out from under an important application. So this does it uh, with kindness. And, and I mean, what that means, I don't really know. I, I don't exactly know what that means. I, I can't picture the, the threads and the processes that it is sort of and how it's interacting with those. I, I don't I don't actually know that. But that's what kquit app five is. I mean that 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 is why you might want to use kquit app five instead of, for instance, kill all. So in this case I'm gonna do user bin kquit app five plasma shell. 
let's just quit the whole desktop. That shouldn't affect my recording, because it is just the desktop. And yes, there, there, my desktop is now gone. I have no desktop. I am running all of my applications with no desktop. It's a, it's a such a weird state to be in. Um, there's a way to gracefully restart Plasma Shell, which is K start five space Plasma Shell, and there it's coming back to life. I've got my panel back. I've got all of the widgets and the trackers and all the things. Not trackers, whatever they're called. The button buttons, little buttons at the top. Um, yeah, they're all back. So now I've got a desktop again. So that's that's Kquit App 5. It, it could be useful, maybe, I don't know. I could see myself using it if my desktop froze. That would be something that would be useful. Okay, so next up is KDE-CLI-Tools. These are terminal commands, command line tools, terminal commands that are uh, based around the KDE Frameworks 5 that help you interact with your system through a terminal rather than through the the GUI, which obviously with KDE would be the default method of interaction. There's there's quite a few of these, uh, so I think we probably deserve a coffee break before delving into that. So let's go get some coffee, we'll come back, we'll talk about KDE CLI tools. <laughs> of coffee. I had to reorder some coffee from Flight Coffee here in New Zealand. And this one is called, the, the previous kind that I gotten was called Milky. And I quite liked it. Um, this one I, I just decided to try something different. It's called Bomber. B-O-M-B-E-R. And um, it's okay. It's alright. There are a couple of moments where I get like this lingering flavor from it. But generally I think it just kind of tastes like coffee. Which is, I mean, that's not a bad thing. It's just not quite doesn't quite stand out the way that that certainly milky was kind of standing out but you know the weird thing is that when when you get like a kilo of coffee like by the you know the fifth day or so of drinking that coffee i find at least that my taste buds get they it, it acclimates to that coffee and it just starts to taste just like normal coffee you know it's like well that's what coffee tastes like now and so i like to mix up the variety just to kind of surprise my taste buds every now and again um but I, I think even, I mean, maybe Bomber is very similar to Milky, and maybe that's why it's not tasting particularly different to me. I'm not sure. But to me, it just tastes kind of like regular coffee. I don't know. Nothing nothing special about this one, unfortunately. But I mean, it's not bad. It's just, it's just, it's just not standing out in any way. Okay, so here is an email from Hipster. That's Hipster spelled with a T-R-E at the end, so the British spelling of Hipster. Um, and Hipster says, I was driving along, listening to and enjoying episode 457 of GNU World Order. There was much talk of Slack, Slackware, and so on, and then a truck with a license plate reading Subgenius, that's S-U-B-G-N-U-S, no less, uh, drove by me. Seemed like the universe was telling me something. Subgnus on top of everything else. What a coincidence. Keep on slacking. Um, yeah, this is a very funny, um, this is one of those weird, you know, like when you see, I actually see the, um, the string GNU a lot on license plates around where I live right now. I don't know why. It just seems to be something that, I mean, it, 
I'm sure it's partly confirmation bias or whatever, you know, like, it's not that I'm necessarily looking for it, but you do kind of, you, you know, when, when it's a string that is recognizable to you, you notice it more. So I do see a couple of uh, GNU license plates. I've definitely seen a couple of GPL, but it's purely, I mean, it's coincidental, right? It's just a string of letters that they put onto a license plate. But when you see something that says, that basically spells out subgenius, then you have to assume that, okay, that's an intentional thing. That's a vanity plate or whatever. So S-U-B-G-N-U-S, subgenius. And it's funny, as Hipster points out, that in this context, the G-N-U part is just, like, that's got that double meaning now. So it's not only genius, it is also GNU. In this context, in other con- in no other context does that make it, is that a big deal? You know, it's just, it's like, all right subgenius whatever um yeah it's funny it's uh, clever thanks for the picture hipster i will um i'm going to post that picture along with the show notes so if you want to see proof that there's a license plate out there that says subgenius except with g and u as the genius part then you can go to the website new world order and you will see that picture on the show notes for episode 465 thanks very much um you know it's funny cuz there was a movie recently about the Church of the Subgenius, which if you don't if you don't know, Slackware actually, um, in an interview, Patrick Volkerding um, mentions that he took the the name Slackware from the joke religion Church of the Subgenius, and um, and so there there is a certain affinity among a lot of Slackware users for this joke religion called the Church of the Subgenius, but. Very recently, there was a movie that put that was put out by the Church of the Subgenius to um, to alert people that that there is absolutely no nothing serious about this 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 parody religion. That it is indeed a parody. It is a joke. It is not to be taken seriously. And I don't feel like I, I feel like for a very long time nobody would have ever thought that that would have been necessary. But I feel like lately it is necessary. It's really important to sort of just be explicit about your sarcasm because sometimes people miss the the messaging. They don't get the subtext. And the subtext of the Church of the Subgenius is that it's a joke. It is not real. Uh, there is no such thing as Bob. Um, people do not actually pay $35 for eternal salvation, uh, although that's a great deal, I guess. Um, and it's just a joke. It's silly, and it's funny, and it's fun, but not to be taken at all seriously. Um, so yes, there is a, they're, they're on record now that it is a joke. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go to a subgenius um, function, though, they are a, a hoot. They are a riot. They're very, very funny. I've seen um, Reverend Ivan Stang talk at a birthday party I was at in Pittsburgh, and it was um, really quite, quite amusing. Um, although there were admittedly some people in the crowd who I didn't, I don't think understood that it was a joke, and that did cause some confusion. Okay, next up is KDE Cly Tools. That's Command Line Interface Tools. So the first one in the list here is K Broadcast Notification, which is a tool that emits a notification for all users by sending it on the system dbus, of course, dbus. Now, unfortunately, I don't have anything useful to send over dbus, so the the demonstration of this particular tool is not very interesting, but you can send messages over dbus with it. You can do user bin k broadcast notification, 
uh, and then some message, for instance, quote, hello world. Press return, and you kind of see for just a brief moment the, um, the, the tab reflect that it's running the K broadcast notification, and then it's over, and that's all. You, you can't, there's not really any, there's no actionable, there's nothing actionable there that, that, that I, that I've been able to cause the n nothing that have happens with that dbus uh, with that dbus message it's just that a message has been sent now there are some options for defining the the application by by desktop uh, by desktop file that should be associated with the notification and the icon to use and so on it's just that uh, I don't have anything to target that would then do anything with the information that I have to send the dbus information to. So it's not not super impressive. Um, I kind of have a feeling that probably a developer testing dbus messages that their application should respond to would have um, probably better better results than that. I just couldn't think of anything useful to do with it. So, oh well. Okay, so there's a user bin KCM shell 5. This, of course, if you'll recall, KCM are the K KDE configure configuration modules, KCM. These are essentially the control panels that you see when you go into system settings. That's what KCM modules basically are. Uh, now, they're all embedded into system settings, but several, some of them have separate sort of launchable, well, I guess all of them technically are launchable outside of system settings. That's the, the significant thing about KCM is that they're, they're kind of self-standing applications. Not, they don't necessarily have entries in your, in your, in your desktop, like your launcher, because again, a lot of them are available really through system settings. And that's kind of the intention that you're going to, man, you're going to interact with them through system settings. I have ended up with you know interacting with them separately sometimes on the off chance that there that there is a desktop entry for them and I, I feel like there must be some i feel like the printer I, I think the printer configuration must have a separate way to get there because i feel like i've been to a printer configuration before where i didn't go to system settings but i am interacting with my printer i could be wrong i could be misremembering because i I thought that and I was looking for the desktop file and I can't find the exact one that I'm thinking of. So it could just be that I, I opened, I don't know, HP lip or something and thought that I don't, not really, I wouldn't mistake that for a KDE configuration, but yeah, there might be something else. Either way, KCM modules, KDE configuration module, they're the, they're the little, they're the, the panels that you see in your system settings and you can see all of them listed with KCM shell five by typing in KCM shell five dash uh, space dash dash list. And that will list all of the ones that are installed on your system. Things like um, about dash distro that provides you information about this system. Uh, things like, let's see, what's another good one? Um, joystick, that's the calibrate your game controller, which no one ever uses because no one actually uses a joystick device. Everyone uses a, a game controller. Although when I say everyone, I mean, you know, me, um, there's also, let's see, KCM underscore firewall. That's for fire, uh, KCM fonts. That's to configure your interface fonts, KCM underscore icons, choose your icon theme and so on. So all of the things, like I say, from system settings, uh, a lot of them are, are, or really, I guess all of them should be listed when you do KCM shell five list. Now you can also, you can actually interact with them through KCM shell five 
by just typing in KCMHL5 and then the module that you're looking for, which I believe you can omit the KCM underscore in front of. So for instance, let's say I want to look at the KCM underscore fonts one. So I should be able to do KCM shell five and just the word fonts. And yes, that does launch the system settings module for fonts. And it's just the font part. It's, it's no other part of the font system setting, whatever that would be. I think that would probably usually involve other stuff like probably, I don't know, system color theme or something like that. You know, it's kind of look and feel, but that's just the fonts module. I'm going to really quick try to type it in exactly as it was presented, KCM underscore fonts. Yes, that also works. Okay, cool. So if you do a dash dash list, you can look at the modules. And then if you do a, a KCM5 shell 5, KCM shell, yeah, 5 space, and then the name of the module that you are looking at, that ought to get you to that module and you can adjust all kinds of information. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how useful that is for, for many of us, but, but certainly it is available. All right, let's look at KDE-inhibit. KDE-inhibit is um, the, it, it inhibits like the, the different traits of your desktop that you might have otherwise turned on. So for instance, you want to stop your screensaver from coming on. KDE dash inhibit space dash dash screensaver with a capital S there in the middle prevents your screensaver from kicking in. I mean, that's hugely useful. I had a, for the longest time, I had a Python script that would just jiggle the mouse every minute or something to prevent computers at a, a workplace that I was, I was at from kicking in to their screensaver because I would I would be installing several applications on them or running updates or something and they would always go into screensaver after a little while and then I'd have to go back and log back in and it just got it got to be too much after you did that 10 times much less 30 or 200 times so I had a python script that just jiggled the mouse that was its that's what that that was its job uh this this is beautiful I mean it wouldn't have worked at that job because they weren't running KDE applications but um in a lab with a bunch of KDE desktops, KDE-inhibit-screensaver be huge. Uh, there's also a dash dash color correct and a dash dash power. So you can inhibit those, those things that people generally consider as features. You can tell them to just not, not kick in right now for whatever reason. Maybe you're, maybe you're doing updates or maybe you just don't need that feature right now. Whatever the point, whatever the reason, um, you can, you can inhibit it. Um, okay. So there's also a KDE, uh, KDE dash open five, which is a way to send a, a URL to a web browser from, from the, from your shell, from your terminal. So KDE-open5, and then let's just type in, I don't know, KDE. Uh, it grabs my Firefox window, and it goes to www.kde.com. Well, that's not what I wanted. What if we do KDE.org? It grabs it, sends it to Firefox. Sure enough, it takes me to KDE.org. Okay, next is KDE copy5, or, or KDE CP5 is what it is. Uh, and this, as you can probably imagine, based on the based on the tr the, the trend here, uh, it copies stuff. Now, well, so it's it's pretty simple to use. It's exactly as you would expect. You do a user bin KDE CP5, and then the path to the source. So I'm just gonna do tilde slash demo slash hello dash ansible dot 
YAML. There we go. There's a hello world file. And then I'll send that over to tilde slash downloads because that gets cleared out a lot. And I'll just do uh, zhello.txt. Gives me a lot of feedback, probably more feedback than I need, but it, it does tell me that through a K KDE framework, kf.kio.slaves.file, which you'll recall are the KIO is the um, sort of the, the helper uh, protocols for things like Dolphin. Uh, it, it, it recognizes, for instance, an audio CD and translates those files on an audio CD to, to actual, to, to look like files on your file system, for instance. That's one thing it does. Another thing it does is copy files sometimes, apparently. And this, this file, KIO, has taken the QURL file colon slash 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 slash, that's three slashes, home slash clatu slash demo slash hello dash ansible yaml to QURL file colon slash 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 home clatu downloads zhello.txt with the mode 420 and the uh, kf kio slave file says by the way the file doesn't have any extended attributes now that's not an error it's just telling me if i do confirm by typing in file tilde slash downloads zhello.txt it confirms that that is a file it does exist i could do a cat on it just to see all the the YAML, there it is, yep, looks good. So it, it's just, it, it was a copy, just like you do with a copy CP, um, or a cat, and then piping it into a file, whatever. But the, 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 the difference is that it is aware of any extended attributes that you might need for special KDE functionality, presumably, I don't really know. Um, but I, I, the note about the extended attributes not being there makes me think, well, it's aware of extended attributes, so if there had been extended attributes, it would have probably been able to do something with them. Um, so that's that's KDE CP5. The next one is KDE Move 5. That's MV5. You can guess what that does. It does the same thing, except instead of copying, it moves. Then there's KEdit File Type 5. Nothing fancy here. This actually just kind of pops up a GUI application, um, possibly a KCM shell, to be honest. I'm not even sure. Um, but it's 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 the one that uh, defines what a mime type is for your for your desktop. So if you've ever messed around with with how your desktop adjusts or, or or reacts to specific kinds of file types, then you may have seen this dialog. You may have never messed around with this. It might just you might just do this through other means. So for instance, let's say that I had a let's find one. Well, here's an Opus file. Now if I right click on that. By default, it says open with VLC. Now, I don't even think I have VLC installed. Yeah, I don't. So that's a holdover from a previous install. So I can go to open with. And the best guess that KDE uh, can do is open it with Emacs. I mean, you know, that's a good guess, but no. Um, Elisa, yeah, that's better. Zine, Zine, Audacious, Cute AV, QML player, and so on. So it, it kind of gets to the right sort of neighborhood there eventually. Um, of course, if I wanted to set it, I could go to other application and then tell it exactly what I would like Opus to be uh, opened with generally. I can't even honestly decide right now, so I'm not going to set it. But if I did, I could do that. And then I would click on Remember Application Association for all file types opus audio which it tells me is audio slash x dash open uh, rather opus plus aug so the mime type of that that file that ends in dot opus is 
audio slash x dash opus plus aug. So if I wanted to set how that was defined in the future forever, uh, then I could do kedit file type 5 audio slash x dash opus plus aug. That opens up a little graphical file type editor, which essentially gives me exactly what I had before, like in my right click win, uh, menu. It, and it's, it's got the application preference order. There's VLC, Emacs, Firefox, Elisa, the exact same order as before. And I could adjust that. So I could take, uh, maybe I do want to open up with Zine or Zine, whatever it's called. So I'm going to click up, up, up and move Zine or Zine to the top. I'm going to just remove VLC from that preference list because, I mean, I don't have it installed still. Uh, eventually, I'm sure I will, but I, I don't yet. I haven't needed it so far, so I'm in no hurry. So there you go. Now that has been opened, or, or that has been set. And that's all the, um, that's all this does. That's, so this is just a, essentially a launcher. Um, it almost makes me wonder what, what kind of file is this? Let's look. So it, it is actual, it's a binary, the K edit file type. So it's not like a shell script that's just invoking KCM shell or anything like that. I wasn't sure. I, I could have gone either way. Okay, so that is K edit file type. We're getting to the the, the end of this of this sequence. Um, and I think you're kind of getting the idea of all of these things. Um, they're, they're really just utilitarian kinds of applications for things that you might want to do frequently and find it too much trouble to go to a, a menu uh, and and select something or, or navigate through a bunch of different... I mean, I don't even know where the the file type thing is. I'm, I'm assuming it probably is in system settings, but who can remember that? K, K file edit... K, K edit file type 5 is, is nominally easier to remember, I guess. Uh, it's easier to remember that it exists, though, and you can tab your way through it. Okay, um, next is KIO client 5. This is an interesting one. It, it has everything to do with, I guess, broadly speaking, URLs. And like I said earlier, KDE is quite transparent, network transparent. So a URL could mean a lot of different things. A uniform resource location is is what it means, and 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 so all of the different forms that that takes um, could could be used with KIO, KIO client five. So if you do KIO client five open properties with a capital P. And then the name of a file. So I'm going to do tilde slash download slash zhello.txt. That brings up the file properties, just like you would get if you would right-clicked on it and and clicked on, what is it, op uh, properties, I think? Yeah, it's got to be just properties. Yep, alt-return properties. Uh, so you get all the information about that file. General information, which includes the file type, the thing that it's going to open with. Oh, that's where that thing is. Then you click the change button, and that that brings up that um, file type editor. That's exactly where that is. Uh, the location of it, the file size, and so on. You can click on the permissions tab, and it tells you who who owns the, the the file and what kind of permissions it has, whether it's executable or not. You can look at checksums. You can share it uh, with Samba, and and what else can you do? Oh, you can get more details on it. Oh yeah, like metadata, like how many stars you've given that file and how how when it was created and when it was last accessed and so on. Uh, you can add a comment, so that's all that stuff. Um, but that's not the only thing that this can do. There are other things uh, that you can use this for. So there's KIO client five move, 
from source to destination. So you can move a URL from one place to another. Uh, and one of those destinations can be the trash. And that's kind of cool. So if you've got something that you maybe you don't want to have, so you can do KIO client 5 move tilde slash download slash zhello.txt and then do trash colon slash then it presumably yes it does it moves that to your file directory in a in a in a free desktop correct way by which i mean it makes an entry into the trash um the the, the metadata about the trash like there's trash files and trash file info and stuff like that. And then it also moves the file from wherever you had it to to your trash. So, I mean, that's a beautiful, beautiful little handy helper application. Um, I don't know that I would use it exactly in that way, but I can see how, how useful it, it is. I mean, when I say I don't know if I'd use it in exactly that way, I would have to alias it. Um, I mean, and that, that could be a really great way to um i mean that could be a kde specific trash command super easy alias a trash to to that command and then a restore uh basically by referencing trash colon slash and then the path to the file and and the back to the destination although i guess you'd have to parse file info to find out where it came from and so on but Either way, really really handy and there's a bunch of other stuff as well you can use kio client 5 to exec um a desktop file, you can use it to bring up an app menu, KIO Client 5 app menu. There's an app menu, just out of nowhere, just now you have an app menu. Really, really interesting little utilitarian stuff. So that's KIO Client 5. Let's look at KMIME Type Finder 5 next. I'm going to give it a path to a file, tilde slash demo slash, uh, what was it, hello, hello, Ada, there's one. And it's telling me that that's an application slash x dash executable. Simple as that. Let's do hello dash args dot java. That's a text slash x dash java file. So if you're ever not really clear on a mime type of a file, that's how to find one real easy on KDE. K mime type finder 5. Uh, next one is k start 5, which I think I've already covered. Um, just moments ago, not moments, but minutes ago, after I k quit app five plasma shell, the way to get that back was k start five plasma shell, and that's what k start does: is it 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 initiates a KDE application that that you want to start, something that you maybe have stopped, or or just maybe something you just you happen to want to start for whatever reason. Next one is k. SVG to PNG5, and that is exactly what you think it is. It's a converter from SVG to PNG. Uh, it does have a couple of interesting requirements. It does require a width and a height, which, you know, like sometimes when you're converting an SVG, you don't think about the width and the height. You just want it to be, I don't know, a width or a height. So I don't know. Let's do, um, I guess, 512. So yeah, uh, KSVG to PNG, that's T O PNG. Not the letter, not the number two, but the letters T O P N G five, uh, and then we'll do a width of five hundred and twelve, and I guess a height of five hundred and twelve, uh, and then the path to the SVG. So tilde graphic clipart d twenty dot SVG tilde slash downloads slash d twenty dot PNG, and then if I do a display of downloads d twenty dot PNG, I see a very wonky. 
uh, graphic because it wasn't perfectly square. I figured it probably wasn't. I was kind of hoping for the best. So I could do instead of 512, I guess let's just try, I don't know, 412 and then display. Oh, that's even worse. I guess I meant, yep, I guess I meant that I needed to do 512 wide 412. Yeah, that's what I meant. Display. Oh, that's much better. Okay, perfect. So that was a quick quick and easy SVG converter, which actually is quite nice to know about. ImageMagick does conversion of SVG to PNG, but there's uh, the the syntax of that is quite quite wonky as well, to be honest. So um, this one is kind of even nicer, I think. I mean, just for that quick conversion. Okay, penultimate entry here is K Trader. What is it? K Trader Client Five. A trader, T R A D E R in K D E, is a type of um, query that K D E is able to make to a subsystem in order to find what applications, or, or rather what services, because it's not necessarily an application, what services uh, match up with a certain set of constraints. And that would translate into, for instance, here's a file. It is of a specific MIME type. What are the reasonable applications to suggest to a user uh, for handling that MIME type? So exactly for like the K MIME type editor, or K edit MIME type 5, um, application where you could go in and and adjust what application was, for instance, the the top preference for a specific kind of file. This is the part of that process that figures out what all of the potential ones are. So, for instance, let's say that you have a uh, a make file and you want to know what applications are are assigned to um, to deal with make files. So you could do k trader client five dash dash mime type text slash x dash make file. Now of course you could if you didn't know that was the mime type of of make files, you could obviously get the the type of mime type assigned to the or or you could find the mime type of that of the file by using k mime type finder five, which we just did moments ago. Um, so you would type that in and you would get back. You know, if you did that with um, on, on a make file, it would tell you that file is a text slash x dot dash make file. So now you know. So then you would go tra k trader client five dash dash mime type text slash x dash make file space dash dash service type application because you're maybe looking for an application. So you do that. Well, I'm going to pipe it through less because I happen to anticipate it's going to be a lot. And it is, MIME type is this, uh, service type is that, got 13 different offers. Offer zero is Emacs, offer, and, and it gives you all kinds of information about Emacs. It tells you what it is, it gives you, you know, pretty much, the, it sort of de deconstructs the desktop file, essentially, is what it's doing there. Um, and another offer one is Firefox, well that's a horrible offer, I should remove that for sure. Uh, offer two is Notepad. Offer three is Kate. So there are definitely some reorganization of these offers that I could do. Um, I'm probably calling some of them like a LibreOffice writer. I don't really need that listed as a as a potential uh, solution for my for a make file and so on. So you get you get all of that information from from K Trader Client Five, and then the final final application included in this package is the not that it is uh, user bin plasma dash open dash settings 
and that literally just opens your system settings. That's it. It just opens system settings. So if you want to launch system settings from a terminal, type in plasma-open-settings, and you're done. You're at system settings. You might want to include an ampersand after that so that you get your prompt back, but that's the quick way to get to system settings on KDE. It's quite convenient. Um, and that's it. That's everything for uh, this this package for the K de-cli-tools. It's everything included. We got through it. Not that bad. Um, next up for not this episode, for future episodes, we're going to start out with KDE de- dev scripts. And we'll just keep on going down through the KDE list. As you can imagine, KDE such and such is a, a, a rather long list. Um, not Not terribly long. I mean, it'll probably take us I don't know, a couple more weeks. But yeah, there's a lot of KDE things in the KDE package. Go figure. That's what I'm trying to say. But that is everything I have for this episode. So thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open that you not take notes, but that you absorb everything you see and hear.